0: My name is Peter Wright. By the way, I'm uh, an assistant professor of religion, uh, Islamic studies, uh, here at Colorado College. I'm going to introduce our speaker tonight. I'll be brief. And then uh, I'll turn it over to Professor Schettinger. I just have a few remarks I'd like to make to try to, I think, put tonight's uh, Discussion in in context, or at least is the way I understand it. We, we are living in a time of great anxiety, where Islam and Muslims are concerned. The level of anxiety abroad in the land appears to be greater today than it was in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven. There are a variety of socio political economic. And cultural factors that have conspired to lead us to this place in our history. But rather than offer you a catalog of the troubles that beset this country in 2010, because I don't think you need to hear that from me, uh, I would like to suggest instead that what we need in this country now more than ever is calm and careful public deliberation about the issues that matter. The media airwaves are saturated with incendiary talk and threatened incendiary actions, uh, even literally incendiary actions, talk of Quran burnings and so forth. But what we we need right now is cooler heads I think determined to prevail. Well one such cool head is tonight's speaker. Robert Schettinger is a mild-mannered Truly unassuming and understated biblical scholar who, through a series of unforeseen and probably unforeseeable circumstances, has found himself in the role of a non Muslim attempting to explain Islam and Muslims mostly to other non Muslims. How he managed to find himself in this position is a story that informs his book, Was Jesus a Muslim? which uh, there are copies uh, for sale back there if you're interested. But I'll let him tell you uh, his story himself. Professor Schettinger received his Ph.D. in religious studies with a concentration in biblical studies from Temple University in Philadelphia in 2000. He studied there with Mahmoud Ayub, who's a fairly well-known uh, scholar in the field. He is currently the chair of the religion department at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, out there in the wilds of eastern, northeastern, uh, northeastern Iowa, not far from the Minnesota border, kind of 20 minutes southeast of Lake Wobegon. Uh, And um, he is also what, what in our conversations uh, in the last couple of days, uh, we've decided to call an accidental Islamicist. Uh, which perhaps would be a fitting title for your memoirs if you ever choose to write them. Uh, but I'll let him explain to you what that means. Uh, so uh, I would like you pl- to please welcome Professor Robert Schettinger.
1: If I ever become famous enough to write a memoir, I have the title. It's the perfect title, The Accidental Islamicist. Well, Thank you for being here this evening. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you. It's my first time to Colorado Springs. I've been to Denver once before, but never to Colorado Springs. It truly is beautiful here. Uh, For those of you who are students, I don't know how you get any of your coursework done. Um, If I were here, I'd be standing outside staring at those mountains all the time, which look like they're just a painted-on mural. It's just absolutely gorgeous. In Iowa, you come to Iowa, I can show you cornfields, but but beautiful, majestic mountains, not so much. So it really is beautiful here. Um, And it's just another part of this country. Uh, There's natural beauty all over America, as I'm sure most of you are aware. But that natural beauty contrasts these days with an ugliness that is sweeping the country, an ugliness called Islamophobia. It's been with us for a long time. It's nothing new, but we're seeing a new, more disturbing manifestation of it in just recent weeks and months. Part of it uh, surrounding the controversy, due to the controversy surrounding the uh, um, plans to build an Islamic center uh, two blocks from ground zero in uh, New York City, and I'm sure you're all aware of that controversy. And I think that's touched off feelings that have been somewhat submerged and are now coming to the surface. So in the last several weeks, we've seen a cab driver in New York City, a Muslim cab driver, have his throat slashed by a passenger who asked specifically if he was Muslim. And when he said yes, he slashed his throat. We've had a mosque building project in Tennessee uh, where there was a fire, and that fire was ruled an arson. We see political rhetoric all the time, some of it equating Muslims with Nazis. It doesn't get a whole lot uglier than that. And then, of course, we have the controversy over President Obama's religion. In recent polls, 18% of Americans believe President Obama is a Muslim, even though there's really no evidence for that. And of of course, this shouldn't really matter because the Constitution says there will be no religious test for public office. So whether he's a Muslim or not is immaterial to the fact that he is president. But those who are trying to stir up this idea that he might be a Muslim are doing it specifically because they recognize that there's a real fear and and suspicion of Muslims among the the general American population. And if they can link Obama to uh, being a Muslim, then it, um, it... undermines his legitimacy as, as being president. Now, poor President Obama can't really catch a break on this since when he was running for president, everybody was really concerned that he had too close a relationship to a certain Christian pastor in Chicago, if you remember that. And now suddenly that he is president, he's become a Muslim. Now, I don't know about you, I don't remember when he converted, Um, I remember him taking the oath of office. I don't remember him taking the shahada, the the Islamic uh, confession that would would mark his conversion. But now we hear that he doesn't have to convert. The noted evangelist Franklin Graham seems to believe that Islam is a hereditary disease. And in his view, I think he does mean disease. Um, Saying that President Obama has inherited his Muslimness from his Kenyan father. Um, And so he is a Muslim by birth, um, therefore, he does not need to convert. So we hear these kinds of things going on around us all the time in these recent weeks. I hope you would agree with me that it is really important to stand up and try to counter this growing wave of Islamophobia. There are millions of Muslims in America. Many of them have been born and raised and lived their entire lives here. They're just as American as anybody else. And yet daily now they have to withstand this barrage of rhetoric that they hear in the media questioning them as legitimate Americans and and whether they even belong here. So I think, uh, I hope that you would agree that we need to work together to counter this Islamophobia. And so one of the questions is, how do we do that? Well, I think one way is to try to create authentic, Dialogue between, primarily, I would be talking about dialogue between Muslims and Christians. Now, when I say authentic, <coughs> excuse me, authentic dialogue, I mean dialogue that allows both sides, both parties to the dialogue, to be able to accurately and fully represent themselves. And I don't think that's always happened in Christian-Muslim dialogue as it's taken place um, in in the past. So I want to talk a little bit about tonight about countering Islamophobia with authentic dialogue, which raises the question, what is authentic dialogue? I'll get to that over time, but I would like to follow that question with a more provocative question, and that is, was Jesus a Muslim? The title of my book. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same thing that a waitress in a deli was thinking last spring when I was having lunch with a friend, talking about ideas in my book, and I had a copy of the book there, and it was laying on the table. The waitress came over. Her eyes fell on on uh, on the book, on the cover. She paused for a minute, and then she, no, and just walked away. Of course Jesus was not a Muslim. Jesus didn't read the Quran and pray five times a day and fast and uh, make the pilgrimage to Mecca and and all these things. Um, He lived before all that began. Um, I'm not denying in asking this question that Jesus historically was a representative of first-century Palestinian Judaism, which itself was a very complex phenomenon. But I do think that there's a way, another way, in which it makes sense to ask this question, and to answer it in the affirmative, and that there's something we can learn from that. So I want to walk you through the steps that to help you understand how I came to even ask a question like this, "Was Jesus a Muslim?" Um, and answer it in the way that I do. So let me give you a little bit of biographical background. Peter alluded to this in his introduction. I went to graduate school at Temple University in Philadelphia in the 1990s. I went there out of seminary, where I had become fascinated by the study of biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew and ancient biblical manuscripts. And I went to graduate school because I wanted to become a biblical scholar. I had absolutely no interest in Islam at all. It wasn't even on my radar screen. So I go to to, to graduate school and I'm I'm studying biblical studies and my program is moving along and I'm meeting with my advisor one day and he says, you know, why don't you consider taking a doctoral seminar in Islamic studies? I said, why? Why would I want to do that? I'm not interested. I want to be a biblical scholar. He said, well I understand that but there's the the job market is very competitive and it's hard to get a job and a lot of small schools can't um, afford to hire a full-time Islamic scholar, but they want to be able to offer a basic introductory level undergraduate course on Islam to their students. If you can market yourself as being able to do that, along with your specialty in biblical studies, you'll be much more marketable. So I thought that sounded like good advice, so I took it, and I took the class. And I enjoyed it. I had a wonderful teacher, Mahmoud Ayyub, uh, who really opened the world of Islamic studies to me, and I found it fascinating. So much so that I decided to go back and take a second course from him. So when I graduated in the spring of 2000, I had my specialty in biblical studies and these two courses in Islamic studies and marketed myself as being able to teach a basic undergraduate level survey course on Islam. And I think that's what got me hired at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, where I am today. Well, my first year there was the academic year of 2000-2001, and I taught the Islam course for the first time in the spring of 2001. It was a good course, and it went well. I thought everything was going well. But there was a young woman in the class from Morocco. She was the only Muslim student in the class. Her name was Huda. Huda, I came to know very quickly, was an extraordinary young woman who really understood her own Islamic faith. So much so that I didn't know why she was even in the class. What could she learn from me? She knew more about Islam than I did. But she made many useful contributions to the class, so I was glad she was there. Late in the semester, she came by my office one day said, Professor Schettinger, I'd like to talk to you about the Islam class. I said, sure, come on in. And she proceeded to tell me how wonderful the class was, the last thing she expected coming from Morocco to a church-related college in the Midwest was that she could take a course in her own tradition. And so she, she thought this was wonderful, so I was feeling pretty good at that point about what I was doing. But she didn't stop there. She said, there's just one problem. I said, oh, what's that? She said, all the information you're presenting about Islam, all the names, the dates, the events, everything, it's all correct as far as I know. But there's something about the way you're presenting Islam, that doesn't feel right to me as a Muslim, but I can't put my finger on exactly what that is. I said, well, thank you for being frank. And uh, when she left my office, I, I mulled over her comments for a few minutes, but without anything really specific to go on, I quickly put them out of my mind. Life went on, summer of 2001. In the fall, I came back ready to teach my biblical studies courses. I wasn't going to be teaching Islam again until the spring. So I wasn't even thinking about it. And then on a bright, sunny Tuesday morning, September 11, 2001, everything changed. In, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, everybody suddenly wanted to know more about Islam. And word got out that there was an expert on Islam teaching at the local college. Me. Expert. So community groups started calling for me to come and and speak to them, and I did. I I went to many of these events because I knew it was important in the aftermath of the attacks to try to dispel many of the harmful myths and stereotypes about Islam that were out there. But my thoughts kept going back to Huda's comments from the previous spring. Who was I to be speaking for Muslims when the only Muslim who had ever sat through my class didn't feel like I was presenting Islam in a way that resonated with her? So I was troubled by that. Well, as luck would have it, Huda had signed on that fall to be a student worker in the religion department. So that meant she was around the department. We got to see each other on an almost daily basis. And we got to know each other better. And then over the next two years until she graduated, we began working together closely as professor and student, but also Muslim and Christian, to try to figure out what it was about what I, the way I was teaching that class that just didn't resonate with her and to try to give voice to her sort of gut instinct. And it took time for this to happen, for her to really be able to articulate what was going on. Uh, But it happened before she graduated. And in a nutshell, what happened is, she finally decided that what was happening, I was teaching Islam from the perspective of it being a religion. And in her view, Islam was not a religion. Now, when she first sort of dropped that on me, I said, what? What do you mean Islam is not a religion? Of course it's a religion. I teach courses in Islam, but I'm a religion professor. Every textbook on world religions has a chapter on Islam. What do you mean Islam is not a religion? She said, Islam is not a religion. I had to then go back and rethink and reread um, and, and, and do more study uh, and rethink much of what I had learned in graduate school to try to figure out what it meant for her to say Islam is not a religion. Uh, and over time, I came to the conclusion that she just might be right, and that the implications of her being right were really significant. And so I want to walk you through the steps of sort of that intellectual journey that got me to sort of, from, from being surprised at Huda's suggestion that Islam was not a religion, to actually coming to a point where I began to affirm what she was saying and and felt like I was beginning to understand where she was coming from. So let's talk about religion for a little bit. This is going to be the academic part of the lecture, so uh, stick with me. Some of these concepts are a little bit tricky. (coughs) Religion is a very common word in the English language. We use it all the time, assume that we know what it means, But do we really? What is religion? How do you define religion, this generic concept, religion? Some of the great thinkers of the last 150 years, some of the great scholars have tried to define religion. But none of them have been able to come up with a definition that has met with any kind of universal um, uh, agreement as to um, a a definition that everybody can sign on to. Religion seems to be a somewhat indefinable term. Now, there's two problems here, a definitional problem and a more serious, I think, ethical problem. So let me talk a little bit more about the definitional problem that will lead into the ethical problem. Religion is an abstract term. We have this concept, religion. But we can't really go out on the street and meet religion. You really can't observe religion directly. But what we say is, well, religion is made up of a variety of different kinds of religions. So we line them up. We say Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Shinto and a whole bunch of others that you, could, that you could put on that list. And we say these are all types of the same thing. They're all flavors, if you will, types of this generic category religion. But what is religion? Well, why don't we look at all these different kinds of religions, compare them to one another, find out what they have in common, Whatever they have in common must be a feature of the generic concept religion. That seems to make sense until you think about it for a minute. If you don't first have a working definition of the generic concept religion, then how do you know all those other things are religions? How do you know that Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism are religions? You need a definition first that would allow you to make those, those determinations. And so the whole process ends up being somewhat backward and somewhat arbitrary in terms of what gets counted as religion and what doesn't. It's this definitional problem with the concept religion, I think, that leads into the more serious ethical problem. Because there's no standard definition of religion that anybody can point to, what often happens is it, it gives license for people to define and redefine religion over and over again in different contexts um, for whatever would be useful in that context. I first encountered this in a very disturbing way in the work of a scholar named David Chittister. David Chittister wrote a book about the use of comparative religion in European colonial ventures in southern Africa. And his thesis goes somewhat like this. When European colonialists went into southern Africa, in the 18th, 19th century, comparative religion scholars went along because they wanted to um, analyze the people of Southern Africa and they wanted to find out what kind of religion they practiced. Well, they were using a definition of religion that grew out of their own Protestant Christian faith. And so they went and they observed the people of Southern Africa and they were surprised when they couldn't find Anything that looked like religion to them among the people of Southern Africa. And he said, You know what? These people don't have any religion. Hmm, strange. We thought everybody did. Now, this is where it gets really um, problematic because they, at the same time that they were denying the existence of religion among the people of Southern Africa, they at the same time believed that religion was the defining feature of humanity. So you could see where this goes. If religion is a defining feature of humanity and the people of southern Africa have no religion, they're not fully human. And that therefore gets used to authorize colonial oppression of the, and exploitation of those people. So this is where the inability to define religion allows it to be defined and redefined almost at will and then can be used in ways to deny people religion, um, to, to, to authorize colonial oppression um, in very ethically problematic ways. Well, as I investigated further, I found a somewhat similar insight in the work of two Islamic scholars. Now these two scholars are worlds apart in almost every way. One's pretty famous, the other one not so much. Um, but but they're, they're, they, they would agree on almost nothing except they both had experiences that led them to the same basic idea, insight, that I want to share with you. The first is the more famous one, um, the Ayatollah Khomeini, the author of the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. While he was painted as the paragon of evil in the U.S. media during the Iran hostage crisis back in '79 and 1980, when I went back and began reading his works, I found an actually quite interesting scholar at work. And he makes the following argument. He says, in the pre-revolutionary days, when Iran was ruled by the Shah, who was backed by Western powers, religion scholars were coming into the educational institutions in Iran and saying things like, you know, Islam, trying to teach people that Islam was a religion. And according to Khomeini, what they meant by that is Islam is a a set of beliefs and practices that are primarily related to people's relationship to God. But they have no real political or economic or social import. Khomeini believes, in his view, that this was done intentionally to domesticate the Iranian population so that they would not be motivated to resist Western imperial oppression of the people. Now, when I first heard this, first read this, I thought, well, that's Khomeini. You know, am I really going to take him seriously? Maybe, maybe not. But then as I investigated further, I came upon essentially the same argument in the work of another scholar who I have real respect for, Fareed Isak, Not as well-known, but uh, he grew up in South Africa on the wrong side of racial apartheid. And he says that during the darkest hours of the struggle for liberation in South Africa, members of the government would come to the the Muslim community in South Africa and say things like, you know, you don't have to engage in anti-apartheid politics because we are giving you complete freedom of religion. You can pray freely, you can give the call to prayer, you can build mosques, you can, you can completely practice your religion freely here in South Africa. So there's no need for you to engage in anti-apartheid politics. Isaac, of course, rails against this idea, saying, if Islam does not have something to say about the material oppression of people under racial apartheid, then what good is it? You know, if our faith does not motivate us to work, for, to, to, to struggle against these kinds of injustices, but that's what the people who benefit from those systems of injustice, that's what they want. If they can get us to believe that you're, you're a good Muslim if you pray and you worship and you fast and you do all those religious things, then you won't be a problem for the oppressors. Isaac says we need to be a problem. When there's oppression, we need to resist it and Islam needs to be a force to motivate us to resist it. So for both Khomeini and Isak, in very different um, contexts, they both understood the attempt to construct Islam as a religion as being part of an oppressive colonial strategy. Well, I had to really think about this. Is that the way religion operates? Is it kind of a discourse of domestication, one of the words that I use in the book? And what does it mean, then, to say, what is Islam? How do we talk about Islam if it's not a religion? This is a harder question, um, and I I don't have the time tonight to go into a lot of detail, but let me just give you some, some ideas here. It seems to me that the concept religion, that is, as something that's separate from things that are not religion, like politics and economics and other things, This concept of religion as a separate aspect of human experience um, can really only exist in an environment where we have a worldview that is um, dualistic between a sacred and a profane realm. You hear people use these terms, the sacred and the profane, sacred and secular. There's a sacred realm and there's a secular realm, and they're totally different from one another. And we don't want to mix them together. Religion operates in the sacred realm and interacts with the sacred realm while politics and economics and those other things operate in the secular or the profane realm. Um, I came to learn very early on that one of the basic concepts within Islam is the idea of tawhid, which means unity. Now, on the surface, that is the profession of the unity of God. Muslims are monotheists. They believe in one God. They don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, God is one. God is a unity. But some Muslim scholars believe that this concept of tawhid goes beyond the mere assertion of the unity of God, but that it has other dimensions as well. For them, the unity of God implies the unity of humanity living in submission to this one God. So you have the idea of the worldwide Islamic Ummah the worldwide Islamic community that transcends barriers of race and ethnicity and nationality. Further, they argue, the Tawhid implies the unity and the integrity of all lived experience, such that one cannot really conceive of a separate sacred realm and a separate secular realm. But everything is integrated together. Now, the scholars who make this kind of argument will say things like this Islam is about submission to God it's living your life all aspects of your life in submission to Allah however one is one needs to be free to do that and one cannot live in full submission to God when one is bound up in relationships of inequality where they're living in submission to other human beings so a slave you know per- perhaps gender hierarchies political hierarchies economic inequalities that mean that people are living in submission to other people therefore they're not free to live fully and enact that submission to god so what's the remedy for that well that means that muslims need to be actively engaged in the struggle to try to create more egalitarian political and economic and social structures that free people from submission to other people so that they can fully submit to God. So in this particular understanding of Islam, you can't separate the so-called spiritual aspect from the material aspects. They reinforce each other. The more the world system is transformed to greater levels of justice, the more people can fully enact that spiritual sense of submission. And the more people that enact that spiritual sense of submission, the more they are motivated to transform the world towards greater levels of equality so that more people can do that and you get into sort of this self-reinforcing circle. This is the way Huda understood what Islam was about. A total comprehensive structure for all aspects of life. Not just my own individual life, but corporate life as well. And when I was teaching it as as a religion, I was confining Islam to a realm of spiritual practice, spiritual values, and cutting off and, and muting its, its inherent political nature. And that just didn't feel right to her. It's not the way she understood it. Well The question I asked was, was Jesus a Muslim? And so far, I haven't said anything about Jesus. So now how does Jesus fit into this equation? It used to be that when people talked about Jesus and Jesus' mission in first century Roman Palestine, the Roman Empire was considered to be kind of a static backdrop against which Jesus played out his drama of salvation history, the salvation of humanity. However, in recent years, scholars have begun to question that particular understanding of Jesus and who Jesus is. We've come to understand, Since we've come to understand that religion, is, as a separate category, is something of a, a Western Christian creation, um, sort of an aberration, not the way most people throughout the world, in, in, throughout history, have understood things. We understand now that in first century Roman Palestine, religion was probably not a functional category for those people. So if you were to go back to the first century and ask people, what kind of figure is Jesus? They probably wouldn't say a religious figure. Today you ask people that. Well, he's a religious figure. First century Palestine, Probably not they'd have to have a concept of religion to be able to call Jesus a religious figure. And it's not clear that they had this functional concept called religion in the first century. Furthermore, scholars have begun to really understand the realities of the Roman imperial system on people's lives, every aspect of people's lives. Roman imperial rule was exploitative and oppressive in the extreme. And it determined the realities of life, every aspect of life for the people who lived under Roman domination. So scholars have begun to reinterpret Jesus in light of the realities of Roman imperial, imperial rule. What were the implications of the things that Jesus preached for uh, Roman imperial rule? Okay, how, how would the things that Jesus preached have sounded to Roman imperial officials. Well, let's take an example. Jesus preached a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming, and he told a lot of parables about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. But over and over and over again, Jesus in the gospels proclaims the kingdom of God. Now, that's been understood as a reference perhaps to you know, new life in heaven, uh, kingdom is thought of as a place where people go when they die. But in the first century, that's not what's going on. Uh, the, the term kingdom of God is a poor translation from the Greek, basileia, which doesn't really mean kingdom in terms of a place, but it mean, it's an idea. It means kingship, sovereignty, rule. Now, Jesus is going around proclaiming the sovereignty of God meaning God is sovereign over all affairs of life. But he's doing it in a context in which the Romans claimed sovereignty over all affairs of life. Caesar was uh, worshipped as a god. So if you have Roman imperial officials claiming sovereignty over all aspects of life, and then Jesus comes along and starts saying, oh, no, 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 God is sovereign. That's an explicit rejection of Roman claims of sovereignty. That's a highly political message. It can't be otherwise. Because if if God is sovereign, Caesar is not. If Caesar is sovereign, God is not. You can't have two sovereigns. That's not what the word sovereignty means. It means having complete and total power over uh, an area. So if Jesus is going around and proclaiming the kingship, the sovereignty of God, he's by definition rejecting Roman claims of sovereignty. And that would have been heard as a highly treasonous kind of a message. That would have been a highly political thing to do in the first century. Not surprised that Jesus was crucified. A couple other examples. Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers um, just before what we call Palm Sunday. That act is often thought of as a symbolic gesture by Jesus to try to get uh, to to try to make the point that the temple system has been corrupted and it needs to be cleansed. But several uh, biblical scholars, Richard Horsley and some others, have argued and I think quite cogently that that's not really what's going on. The, The temple, the Jewish temple, was the main institution of Roman imperial oppression of the people. The people brought their sacrifices and made their, their contributions to the temple. Lots of money accumulated in the temple. And then the Romans used that money to build aqueducts and things like that. Um, so it was like a Roman bank. It was the primary institution of Roman economic exploitation of the people. By overturning the tables of the money changers, it's more likely that Jesus' symbolism there is a symbolic rejection of the entire Roman exploitative economic system. It was a political act. Now, people will say, well, what about the saying, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, another famous saying of Jesus. Many people think of that saying as being a a first-century appeal for separation of church and state. Not so sure. Again, the translation here is problematic. We have give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. We use the word give in English for both. But in Greek, it's two different words that get translated as give. When Jesus is asked by his his enemies who are trying to get him in trouble whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus says, bring me a coin. So somebody pulls out a coin. He says, whose face is on that coin? And they say, Caesar's. And then Jesus does not say, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The Greek word there means give back, return to Caesar what what is his. That coin has Caesar's name on it. It's his. Get rid of it. And then give to God what is God's with the implication that everything is God's. So this is probably better read, again, as a rejection of Roman claims of sovereignty over the people because Jesus is proclaiming the sovereignty of God and you can't have two sovereigns. More and more as scholars are looking, it it looks more and more like Jesus was a highly political figure in the first century. Not the religious figure that we tend to think of him today. That his His understanding of the sovereignty of God over all affairs of life led to an explicit rejection of Roman oppressive imperial systems. And this got him into trouble. And so he was crucified, not surprisingly. But to the extent that Jesus understood this inherent connection between the development of people's spiritual lives and the the improvement of their material conditions, political, economic, social conditions. Jesus, to me, looks looks to me as if he sees the world much more like the way Muslims understand the world, through this lens of Tawhid, where everything is integrated together and not separated out. That Jesus understands the world much more like a Muslim, does today, or, or did, than the way contemporary Christians do with our sacred-secular dichotomy where we can take religion and sort of coordinate off into this one box and then leave politics and economics over here in a separate realm. And it's in that way that I conclude that yes, Jesus was a Muslim. Now what are the implications of that? Well the first thing I want to say is that this more political, if you want to use that term, political reading of Jesus is not absent from the Christian tradition, even if it hasn't been the primary focus throughout most of Christian history. I want to give you three examples. In the early part of the 20th century, a Baptist pastor, German Baptist pastor in Harlem, he, he, he pastored a church in Harlem in New York in the Hell's Kitchen area, of of Harlem. His name was Walter Rauschenbusch. And he began to look around at his congregation. Now this was the turn of the the, the 20th century. So it was a period when you had a lot of very rich people, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and all those, with a lot of money. And then you had a lot of poor people. People who lacked basic necessities of life, health care, things like that. Well, it sounds like today, I suppose, but We'll get to that, um, but this was what life was like in the in the turn of the 20th century, and Rauschenbusch's uh, congregation was very very poor. And he began looking around at them, and and he, and he came to this conclusion. He said, "You know, I can't just stand up here and preach to them that if they accept Jesus as their Savior, then their sins are forgiven and they'll go to heaven when they die. They need help now. They need jobs. They need health care. They need decent." life in this world. And if Jesus isn't relevant for that, then Jesus just simply isn't relevant to them. And so he, be, he wrote this famous book uh, that, be, that spawned what became known as the social gospel movement that began to articulate Jesus as much more of a political figure, one who was interested in the material liberation of people from oppressive structures, not just their spiritual lives. Because there's an indelible interconnection between spiritual life and the material conditions of life. So the social gospel movement flourished for a while, but but then it sort of died out. In the middle of the 20th century, in Latin America, um, coming out of the Catholic Church, where, again, you had high levels of economic injustice and things like that, uh, you have liberation theology developing, the liberation theology movement, which, again begins to think of Jesus as a figure who is much more important for the material affairs of people's lives, not just the so-called spiritual. And then liberation theology provided the foundation for the development of black theology during the time of uh, the development of civil rights in the 1960s and the 1970s. And that movement continues today. Black theologians that see Jesus as having to be relevant for the struggle for racial justice in America. And if Jesus isn't relevant to that struggle, then he's simply not relevant to African American people. So, social gospel, liberation theology, black theology, and there's probably, you can probably think of others. This more political reading of Jesus is certainly not missing in the Christian tradition, even if it hasn't been primary. Well, I think this has a lot of relevance for the situation that we find ourselves in today. We've just learned last week, latest statistics, that 14% of Americans are now living below the poverty rate. Richest nation in the world, 14%, one in seven, many of them children. We've seen over the last 20 years increasing levels of wealth disparity with the rich getting richer, the middle class disappearing, and the poor getting poorer. In 2007, the richest one-tenth of one percent of Americans took an 11 percent of the total income. The top one-tenth of one percent had 11 percent of the income. So we see growing, and it's never the, the, the wealth disparity has never been that great. and and it is getting bigger. The middle class is disappearing, and we're now in what seems to be an unending crisis of unemployment and underemployment. In light of this, these realities that are so disturbing, I've been interested recently to hear some progressive responses to these realities. On September 13th, the progressive op-ed writer in the New York Times, Bob Herbert, wrote this. He says, the U.S. economy needs to be rebalanced so that the benefits are shared more widely, more equitably. The U.S. economy needs to be rebalanced so that the benefits are shared more widely, more equitably. Now, he uses the term rebalanced there instead of using the more provocative term, wealth redistribution, which gets everybody all upset. But, of course, wealth is always being redistributed in the, in the economy. It's a matter of is it being redistributed down or up. Right now it's being redistributed up. But that's what he's talking about when he says rebalanced so that the benefits are shared more widely. He's talking about some form of wealth redistribution that has to occur to ameliorate these, these growing disparities of wealth. Well, I find that interesting. Bob Herbert probably doesn't recognize this, but this is an idea that is found in the work of some Islamic economic scholars who understand the Islamic pillar of zakat, or almsgiving, not simply as charity, as the religion textbooks often portray it, but as a tax of 2.5% on accumulated wealth, not income, but on accumulated wealth, That would be collected by, theoretically, by an Islamic government and then redistributed to those who have need. The purpose of it being a type of regular wealth redistribution within the economy to avoid having massive levels of of, um, wealth disparity. Now, that's not to say that everybody has to have the same amount. This is not a socialist program by any means. It's simply... (coughs) a matter of trying to, as Herbert says, rebalance the economy on a regular basis to avoid having large concentrations of wealth fall in the hands of a very small number of people where other people don't have the basics for a life of dignity. Um, so at least on that point, Bob Herbert's progressive response to the economic crisis fits very well with what's coming out of the work of some Islamic economic scholars. Then I heard Arianna Huffington, the head of the Huffington Post, founder of Huffington Post, speaking on a a news program recently, and she had this to say, we need to return to making things in this country rather than making things up. We need to return to making things in this country rather than making things up. What she's talking about there is the loss of the manufacturing base in our economy, where we don't make anything in America anymore. All the manufacturing jobs get shipped overseas where things can be made much more cheaply. And now we have all these people out of work with skills in manufacturing, but there's no factories for them to work in because we don't make anything. But what we do do well in this country, or have done well, is make things up. And what she's talking about there are the fancy financial instruments that the barons of Wall Street were were cooking up over the last 10 years or so the credit default swaps and the securitized mortgages that effectively brought tremendous wealth to the people working on Wall Street but essentially brought the economy to the brink of disaster. We're good at making things up, but those things don't add any value to the economy. We need to get back to making things, things that do add value. Well, once again, Ariana Huffington probably doesn't realize this, but her ideas here are actually quite in sync, again, with ideas coming out of um, Islamic economic thinking, some Islamic economic scholars who argue that it is not legitimate to use money to make money, that money is a medium of exchange. You, you receive money in exchange for goods and services of value, that you put back into the economy. But, of course, what's been happening on Wall Street is people figuring out ways to use money to make money in a way that does not add any value back into the economy. So there you have it. Bob Herbert, Arianna Huffington, both speaking Islamic economic principles, probably without even realizing it. So in the struggle for economic justice in this country, it seems to me that Muslims might be the best friends that the progressive movement has. They just don't realize it yet. And right now the progressive movement can use all the friends they can find. Now I've had a real interesting experience since my book was published. It was discovered fairly quickly after it was published by an Islamic organization outside of Detroit called the Islamic Organization of North America or often sometimes just the acronym IONA I O N A and they're a fairly conservative islamic revivalist group but they really liked what i had to say I, what i had to say really resonated with the message that they've been trying to get out and so they've been they've invited me and they've they funded me to travel around the country over the last year and speak in Islamic communities across North America, from North Carolina to to California. And one of the things I've really enjoyed on those visits is sitting around with American Muslims and talking about the economic situation in America. And I've been so impressed by, one, how educated they are about it, and, two, how I, as a progressive, resonate so well with the ideas that they have. We, we just click when we talk about economic issues. Of course when we construct Islam as a religion then we can only talk about the spiritual aspects, the relationship to God. Economics, that's for the secular world and we have to leave that out. But I think if we can let the Muslim sort of rejection of the category religion become a part of our dialogue and really take it seriously, then I think there's much that we can find in common as Christians and Muslims, as we all work together in the struggle for a more just and equitable society and a better life for all of us in this world. Now, in concluding this evening, I would like to return to my student, Huda, the one who got me started on this. Two things about Huda. One, For those of you who don't know Arabic, and I'm assuming that's most of you here, you would miss the irony that Huda's name in Arabic, the the word Huda in Arabic means guidance. She has been my guide in a very big way. Now Huda, after she graduated from Luther in 2003, she moved to New Jersey where she had gotten married and her husband was going to be going to medical school in Philadelphia, I think. So they had moved to New Jersey, and while he was going to medical school, she earned a master's degree at Seton Hall University in international relations. Then when her husband graduated from medical school, they moved to Brooklyn, where he was going to do a surgical residency in New York. Now, they had a couple of kids. They have two daughters now, and they were settled in Brooklyn, and Huda was raising her daughters, and she was doing some part-time work for some nonprofit organizations, And then when her husband graduated, uh, his his residency, finished his residency, and he could move anywhere in the country and probably get a job, she decided to bite the bullet and go back for a Ph.D., again, in international communications. So over the last year, I was writing letters of uh, recommendation for her applications. She was applying in a number of different places. She (coughs) finally accepted admittance to a program, In international communications at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. So this summer, she and her family packed up in Brooklyn and they moved to North Carolina. And then in late August, I got this very disturbing email from Huda. Somehow or other, and they're not sure how this happened, they got themselves tied up with an unscrupulous mover. He was licensed and bonded but he was a crook. And so they they drove from Brooklyn to Chapel Hill, waited for the moving van to arrive, and it never did. And so they were alone in a strange place. They didn't know anybody, and they didn't have any other stuff. And she sent me this email. I have to start classes soon, and, and, and I'm just not in a frame of mind to begin a Ph.D. program. And I sat there at my computer, and I thought, what can I do for her? She's done so much for me. What can I do for Huda? I, I just felt helpless. And I wanted to just jump on the next plane to North Carolina and, and help her out. And I knew I couldn't do that. And then suddenly it dawned on me. One of the places that the Islamic Organization of North America has sent me to speak over the last year, we did this back in January, was the Islamic Association of Raleigh, North Carolina, not far from Chapel Hill. And when I go on these mosque visits, I tell the story of Huda just like I told it here this evening. So I thought, hmm. I emailed the leadership of Iona in suburban Detroit, explained the situation. They contacted their local affiliates in Raleigh and explained the situation. And within 6 hours, Huda had been contacted by three members of the Muslim Student Association two at UNC, and one at Duke. Saying, welcome to the neighborhood. We hear you're having some problems. We're here to help. Anything that you need, we're here for you. Next day, I got this email from Huda. Just couldn't believe that I was able to to do that for her, that I would do that for her. And I thought about that. And I said, you know, what kind of a world is it in which a Christian scholar of religion in rural northeast Iowa can contact the leaders of a conservative Islamic revivalist organization in suburban Detroit to enlist help for a Muslim woman and her family who are having trouble in North Carolina, a Muslim woman who had previously in her life transformed the life and the the career of that Christian scholar of religion in Iowa. I'm not sure what kind of world that is, but it's the world that I want to live in, and it's the world that you and I together must try to build in resisting this wave of Islamophobia and getting back to seeing each other as human beings and working together. So that's my appeal to you this evening. That's the world I want to live in, and I hope it's the world that you want to live in. Thank you.